Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering this week. Which is faster, CT or MRI? And the answer won't surprise you. Next, how your American peers are treating PEs. After that, direct versus video laryngoscopy for infants. Then TXA for TBIs. Still not done talking about that. And then finally, some advice for residents for the upcoming match. This is the audio version of all the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the virtuous Bo Stubblefield, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. So without delay, here's the first article titled Multimodal CT or MRI for IV thrombolysis in ischemic stroke with unknown time of onset out of the journal Neurology. Patients often present with strokes after extended periods and even with unknown times of onset such as with wake-up strokes. And I would harbor a guess that this is becoming even more common what with a pandemic and everybody scared of catching the virus from a hospital. I know I've seen a few cases of things similar to this even myself. Well, just because they were late doesn't mean that we can dawdle as well. And you've got two choices for imaging. You can either get a CT or an MRI to assess these patients. But which one leads to a shorter time to treatment? Now, I know, I know, I wouldn't have even thought that anyone was asking this question either, but at least we have a little bit of evidence, you know, to make us more sure. This was a single-center retrospective registry study of extended or unknown stroke onset patients who received TPA. They had 100 patients who received a multimodal CT, that's a non-contrast CT, a CTA, and a perfusion study, for which the total scan time is just under two minutes to perform. And then the other group were 84 patients who got a multimodal MRI, a scan that takes 16 minutes and 38 seconds to do. Each group was similar in terms of patient characteristics, except that the CT group had a little bit shorter time to presentation, and the MRI group had a few more wake-up strokes. So, unsurprisingly, the CT group was treated faster, but only by about 30 minutes compared to the MRI group. Now, despite this small difference, there was no difference in the 90-day neurological outcomes between the two groups. So I'd say that the takeaway here is probably that you can do either one. So just get what's best for your patient or whatever you know is faster at your shop, since this was just a single center study and you're going to know what's best in your work area. In a spoonful from this study, multimodal CT scans led to faster treatment times compared with the MRI for stroke in patients that presented after 4.5 hours. Then we have the second article, which was titled Outpatient Management of Patients Following Diagnosis of Acute Pulmonary Embolism at the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Now, most people are already quite comfortable with managing DVTs on an outpatient basis, and this is widely accepted as being best practice most of the time. DVTs are not the only kind of thrombosis that's low risk, though. Indeed, there are many PEs that can also be managed as outpatients, but that practice has kind of lagged a lot behind the treatment of DVTs in this way. This is despite the validation of several clinical decision tools like PESI, SPESI, and the HESTIA criteria, which keep low-risk patients out of the hospital when applied. So luckily, the treatment options for these patients have also been simplified, as DOEGs are now recommended by clinical practice guidelines. So with all this, and it being well supported by evidence, let's take a look at the practice patterns in the United States to see how well they align with the data. This was a retrospective cohort of 61,000 patients diagnosed with acute pulmonary embolism in 740 U.S. hospitals. The primary outcome was disposition from the emergency department, so if these patients went home, they were admitted or sent for observation. 
the discharge rate for acute PEs was just less than 5%. In this group of discharge patients, by 30 days, 18% had a return visit to the emergency department, but only 10% were hospitalized the second time around. And just 1.3% of the discharge patients had a bleeding-associated diagnosis when they returned. The most powerful predictor for the primary outcome, that is disposition being for outpatient management, was which hospital they presented to. Which of course is odd, because we're all working with the same pool of available evidence. So you'd think the rates would be pretty similar. And yet, the rates of outpatient management varied widely between institutions. Some hospitals discharge more than 13% of their QPE patients. And like I said, the average was just below 5%. And this is relevant because not surprisingly, the costs of admitted patients are on the order of six times higher than for a discharged patient. So we see that despite the amassing body of clinical trial data and the support of guidelines, there's still a sense of wariness in discharging patients with low-risk PEs. But repetition is key to changing behavior, and so that's why we're happy to enforce it here yet again. So in a spoonful from a U.S. cohort of patients, emergency department rates of discharge for acute PE patients was just under 5%, and these rates varied widely between sites. And then the third article titled, First Attempt Success Rates for Video Laryngoscopy in Small Infants, a Multicenter Randomized Controlled Trial out of the Lancet. If there was ever going to be a group of patients that were going to make you sweat when prepping for intubation, it's probably infants. If you're specialized in pediatrics, maybe it's less stressful for you because you do this often. But for the rest of us, it feels a lot like there's bigger stakes and you're doing it on a much smaller package. I know that I would take anything that would help me improve my chances of success. And there's already a strong argument to be made for using video laryngoscopy in pediatrics in general, but does that apply to infants as well? Here we have an RCT of 564 infants across multiple countries who were being intubated in the operating room and they were randomly assigned to either a standard geometry video laryngoscope, that is, that it was not hyperangulated, or a normal direct laryngoscopy. First pass success rate was actually higher in the video group at 93%, which was statistically significantly higher than the direct group, which had an 88% first pass success rate. Complications were also lower in the video group, just 2% against the 5% in the direct group. And lastly, there was just one esophageal intubation in the video group, and there was seven in the direct group. Most of these differences, they're fairly small. These are just a few percentage points. But if we scale these numbers up, then, well, the number of infants' lives that are, you know, put less at risk are also increased. Also, this study was on a planned elective patient population. In the emergency department, I think that any advantage you can take is one that you should take. Keep in mind that this study was funded by Carl Storrs Corporation, which makes and sells video laryngoscopes. That doesn't make it all false, but it just means to be skeptical. In a spoonful, we have an RCT supporting the use of standard geometry video laryngoscopes over direct laryngoscopy for infants to reduce complications. And now the fourth article titled Association Between Pre-Hospital Transexemic Acid Administration and Outcomes of Severe Traumatic Brain Injury out of the JAMA Neurology. TXA's back in the news again. All right, again, we'll quickly review everything we need to know about TXA. The CRASH-2 trial showed us that TXA lowered mortality from bleeding in trauma patients. The CRASH-3 trial showed a slight benefit to 28-day mortality for TBI patients with GCS scores above 8. But a more recent trial refuted that when they looked at TXA given pre-hospital in these patients and showed no benefit. The problem with the refuting study was that it was a little bit messy. It included moderate and severe injuries as well as extracranial injuries. So if we want to know the answer about TBI specifically, then that's where we have to focus. 
And that's exactly what these authors did. This was a retrospective study of prospectively collected data from the Brain Project trial. This was a cohort made up of patients with severe TBIs, so a GCS less than 9, who received pre-hospital treatment and were flown by helicopter to a level 1 Dutch trauma center. The authors were able to include 1,800 patients, 75% of which had confirmed TBIs, and half of these had isolated TBIs. From the entire cohort, about one-third received TXA, and these patients tended to be older and those with more severe injuries. Now, after adjusting for confounders with multiple logistic regression, there was no significant difference in 30-day mortality in the entire cohort or in those with TBIs if TXA was given. If we focus down onto the patients that just had isolated TBIs, then TXA wasn't just unhelpful, it was actually harmful. There was an adjusted odds ratio of 4.5 for a higher mortality rate if these patients had isolated TBIs and received TXA. In a spoonful, this study found an increase in 30-day mortality for patients in which TXA was given in the pre-hospital setting for isolated severe TBIs. And finally, we have the last article, which is titled Misunderstanding the Match. Do students create rank lists based on true preferences? Out of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. A timely article, if I may say so, as I myself am currently applying to EM residency programs. I'll let you all know how that turns out in a few months, I'm sure. Now, the National Residency Match Program match algorithm is complicated, and you don't need to know all the specifics about it, but there are certain details that you need to know before making your match list. It's actually set up to favor the applicant preference for residency placement. So depending on the factors that you use to decide to make your rank list, you might be doing yourself a disservice if you're considering the wrong factors. So before ranking, make sure you understand a few points. Now, again, the algorithm's entire existence is meant to promote the best outcomes for the applicants who submit what their true preferences are. Past students have not entirely understood what this means, though. Third-year students from a Midwestern medical school were given hypothetical situations on which they could reflect on how this would change their rankless decisions. The way they responded didn't seem to reflect a good understanding of how the algorithm actually works. The things that should, indeed, affect your rank order are things like proximity to an ill family member, and maybe this is the only city that your partner can find a job in. These would affect how you'd feel when you were actually placed at this site. Things that should not affect your rank list include things like learning that the program ranked you low on their list. That actually shouldn't matter to you. So 63% of the study responders reported that their perceived competitiveness would influence their rank list at least a moderate amount. 23% moved the program lower if they were told that they were ranked low by that program. And 6% ranked a program higher if they learned that they were ranked high by that program. Interestingly, the results were similar even if the questions were asked more hypothetically about what advice you would give to a colleague, and in that case being affected by how competitive you are really shouldn't matter. If it's about you, then at least there's some bias because you feel good when people tell you that they like you, but if it's about someone else, then that's not even there. The point really isn't to try to guess the likelihood of you matching to that program. Instead, it's to give your honest rank order of where you want to go and where you think that you'd be happiest. If you're ranking this year or advising people that are ranking, then spread the word to decide with your heart and focus on what really matters. Who cares what those programs think of you?
In a spoonful, a group of respondents making hypothetical residency rank lists show they were influenced by things that should not affect their true residency preferences, like how competitive they were for the spot. Now that was our last article, let's do a quick wrap-up and review of everything that we covered. From the first article, CT scanners scan faster, and that translates to faster treatment times for stroke patients with delayed presentations. Shocking, I know. Second, from a large U.S. cohort of patients, only 5% of acute PE patients were discharged. And this number could probably be a little bit higher. So remember your PESI, your SPESI, and your HESTIA criteria. Third, how many years is it going to be before every laryngoscope comes with a camera on it? I'm not even sure. Infants also benefit from video laryngoscopy when compared with direct scopes. Fourth, we were playing with the balance between stopping bleeding and hypercoagulability. Pre-hospital TXA for TBI patients doesn't seem to get us the right balance and may not be safe. And lastly, it's counterintuitive, and even though it feels good to know that people want you back, focus on the things that really matter to you when you're making your residency rank list. Forget the things that don't matter. Even if they hate you, ranking that program higher won't hurt your chances of matching. Now, you've earned them, we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Here you can also find the links to all the articles summarized, and if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.